All right, so first question. When told a secret, many people feel the need to tell someone else. Is this a psychological effect of some sort? Basically, yes. This is the uh, people who need to tell secrets to other people do this often because they want to make themselves feel more important. And it comes from a place of insecurity. And if you have secret knowledge, you can share it. It makes you feel either smarter or more enlightened or wiser or special in some way. And so people who tell secrets tend to be the, be insecure in their, own, in their own sense of self. And they want to be important and they want to be valued. So they tell secrets to raise their value with other people. Uh, next question. Upon reading about anointing, I am hesitant to request it as uh, from what I read, you need to examine your heart, harbor no sin. I want to be without sin, but certainly am not. How do you think God views us if we ask for healing? So I would just tell you, to, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 13, reads as follows. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. There is nothing in Scripture that says that you must be without sin to be anointed or even healed. So, uh, if you remember, Jesus healed the ten lepers, and only one came back to thank him. So, I, I don't know where that idea came from. It certainly is not from Scripture. If you are struggling with something and you want to have an anointing, um, recognize the anointing, as far as I'm concerned, is not magical. The oil has no special healing properties. It is a, a symbol or a ceremony to dedicating yourself to God and asking for his presence, and it can be very powerful, but, but there's nothing about you have to do without sin. Next question. Uh, Ellen White speaks of the ledger of heaven. Knowing Satan turns everything upside down, what does the ledger of heaven mean in the context of ledger and the debt Christ paid for us? So a ledger is just simply a, a, a way of describing a recording of some sort, that in heaven God keeps some form of records. Uh, the Bible talks about the Lamb's Book of Life, and they're judged by the things according to the record. A ledger is simply a way of communicating to our mind that in heaven God keeps track of what's happening here on earth. Uh, just a recording device. I heard you say that Job was the first book written in the Bible. How do you know this? Who wrote it? And why is it not listed as the first book? So early, um, if you look up uh, Job in the um, SDA Bible commentary or most other Bible commentaries, you will find a long discussion about that question. There are scholars who debate it, but early Jewish tradition, uh, though not unanimous, assigned the authorship of the book of uh, Job to, to Moses. Uh, the Babylonian Talmud uh, says that Job uh, wrote, excuse me, Job was written by Moses. And then uh, in a uh, Signs of the Times, February 19, 1880, 1880, Ellen White wrote the following. And so this is uh, showing that the early Adventist position was that it was written by um, Moses. Here's what she wrote. Long years spent amid the desert solitude were not lost. Not only was Moses gaining a preparation for the great work before him, but during this time, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the book of Genesis and also the book of Job, which would be read with the deepest interest by the people of God until the close of time. So, um, there you have it. Um, I, for, that's from my position. I think the, the there's historical evidence to support that and scholarly evidence, but it's if you go with the scholarly evidence only, it's not necessarily conclusive. People can debate it. But my position is, as I wrote, I think Job was the first book written, and then Genesis. What are your thoughts about Lautaro C? 
Um, I think that's something written by the current Pope. Uh, I have not read it, and I don't know anything about it. So I don't have any thoughts on it. Um, you said in your discussion on the infinite sacrifice of Christ that Jesus, God the Son, an agency of the Godhead, when born as a man, stepped out of eternity future to forever be human. As I see it, this was this will affect or change the triune nature or composition of the Godhead, which, as I understand, will never change as God is the same in eternity past and future. What are your thoughts on this? Well, first off, it's not exactly what I wrote. Um, there was an interesting word left out. What I, what I wrote was that, uh, and I've got the blog pulled up, and anybody can go to the blog and read it, that uh, Jesus stepped out of infinity for all eternity future. I didn't write that he stepped out of eternity future. So he stepped out of infinity, meaning that Jesus uh, became human, and he was given, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus was not loaned to us. Jesus became human, and becoming human, he gave up certain elements of his divine abilities that were restrained or restricted in the human physiology, specifically omnipresence. And that's why the Holy Spirit now carries out the omnipresent activity that the Son did prior to his incarnation on his own. And so that's my understanding of that. Regarding the nature or composition of the Godhead, that's uh, when Jesus became human, if you're going to be very literal and physiological, uh, that changed the nature and composition. But that's not where the Bible speaks about that God never changes. The part that God uh, speaks about uh, never changing is the character, methods, principles, motives, standards of God never change. And those have certainly have not been changed. They've been validated, sustained, and carried forward in back into humanity, even through Jesus. Is Jesus' death salvific? So, uh, salvific. That's the word. And I would have to say that you would have to clarify, what do you mean by salvific? This question is actually too restrictive. Uh, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are the means whereby sinners are saved. Uh, the death is a requirement. We could not be saved without the sinless life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But to, to make it exclusively the death, then it negates the life, and there is a certain problem with that. For instance, when Jesus was an infant, he was still sinless. Sinless Jesus, baby Jesus, sinless. Herod sent forces to kill him. He could have died as our sinless Savior as a baby if the death was all that was necessary. But the death was not all that was necessary. In order to save us, Jesus had to live sinlessly as a man and develop a perfect sinless human character, Hebrews 5, uh, 9, 9 and 10, that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Being made perfect, Jesus was always sinless, but Bible perfection is not merely sinlessness. Bible perfection is about maturity of character, and character cannot be created. It must be developed by the choices of the sentient being, or the sapient being. And so Jesus developed a perfect, sinless human character and died on the cross consistent with the character of God of self-sacrificial love and destroyed the infection of fear and selfishness that Adam 
brought into humanity. And so his death was per- certainly part of it, but it wasn't sufficient in and of itself, as, as I think the evidence I just gave that, that sinless Jesus dying as a baby would not have resolved the problem. Revelation 16:12, the remedy uh, in your interpretation, the act of the sixth angel pouring out the bowl of God's wrath as the withdrawing of God's forces of righteousness, well, which I guess is kind of the same as uh, dried up, but didn't say what the Euphrates River actually symbolizes. Most evangelicals believe it's a literal river that dries up as it is doing now. What meaning does the river have since it isn't part of Israel's geography or featured in the sanctuary services salvation story metaphor? So uh, when it comes to interpreting symbols like this, there are actually a variety of ways this can be interpreted. Literal can be applied metaphorical, but yet still with literal applications like the river represents the the rise and fall of the Ottoman Empire and so forth. It can have um, more metaphorical applications where the the waters in Revelation represent peoples, and, and so forth. In my view, I take the uh, take the view, and this is as, and, and I'm not dogmatic on this. This this may not be the the absolute end all be all. And I think when it comes to Revelation, we have to be open to uh, to uh, things unfolding. And the purpose of Revelation, by the way, and most Bible prophecy is not for us to be able to sit and write out a proper timeline. Jesus told us that he told us these things beforehand so that when they occur, our faith will be strengthened. So the primary purpose of Bible prophecy is not to give us a perfect roadmap of the unfolding events, but so that when the events happen, we can look back and say God was not taken by surprise and our faith in God is strengthened um, because the prophecies were already written out beforehand. That's the primary purpose. But to the degree we try to discern these things ahead of time, my view of the Euphrates actually symbolizes the people. And the Euphrates was the river that ro- that flowed through Babylon, that was diverted uh, when the Medo-Persians uh, overtook uh, Babylon. And the river, and so if you take the Bible symbolism, Babylon was a real, real nation or, or city, and it also became a metaphor for the apostate um, system that work, wars against God. The river Euphrates is the river that flows from that system. The waters represent the people, so this would be the people that carry out the apostates' uh, uh, rebellion against God. God's wrath is withdrawing or letting go, and God is still, even though they're rebelling against him, God's grace has been working to try to bring them to redemption, and at some point they pass the point of no return, and God withdraws his protective hand from them, and as he withdraws his protective hand from them, then they uh, lose all elements of grace, and they become you know, more uh, hardened in, in their ways and so forth and so on. And so I think that's really what's being described here. What's happening, what we're seeing in the world is that God's grace and restraining powers being withdrawn from all those who continue to advance the Babylonian imperial law, rebelliousness against God elements. And, um, and this is making way for the kings of the East. Now, who are the kings of the East? That's a whole other different discussion. Uh, you can have lots of different views about it, but one view of the kings of the East would be Christ and all those sitting on the thrones around him in heaven described in Revelation who have their crowns sitting on thrones and reigning with Christ. These are the kings coming from the East because the uh, angels of God that bring salvation come from the East and the little cloud that is going to um, come that uh, turns into Christ's second coming comes from the East. And so these uh, events of the hardening of the hearts and the uh, wrath of God poured out on those rebelling against him, carrying on the Babylonian system, uh, make way for the second coming of Christ. So what do you all think about that? It's okay. Okay. So so that's kind of what we would call just spitballing that off the top of your head. (laughs) 
Okay, I just lost my page. Let's see if I can get it back. Let's see. Yeah, let's see. Here we are. Yeah. Um, we are renting a lodge in our church camp for our family's Christmas gathering. The camp doesn't allow pets. However, our daughter-in-law discovered they allow emotional support animals. With, <laughs> with appropriate documentation and vest. There are family members that prefer not to have a dog at this gathering. It appears that claiming your pet is a, an emotional support animal is a popular way to impose their pets on others and avoid policies. Can, can you speak to this fad of bringing animals everywhere? Is it truly medical treatment? Uh, it is our first Christmas with her. How do we lovingly address this issue? We don't want to offend her or alienate her, but we uh, also want to be fair. There are other families making arrangements for their pets care at home. Several don't want animals running around 22 people. So first off, I think there are two issues here. One is the general idea and the question of emotional support animals. And you're absolutely correct. I have seen lots of people use the emotional support animal avenue to be able to take their pets where they normally wouldn't be able to take their pets. Uh, and, and is there... Does, so is there documentation that animals provide emotional, psychological support to trauma? Absolutely, there is. There's no question about it. And it can be very therapeutic and they can actually play a role in therapy. So that is that is a true statement. Does that mean that emotional support animal has to go to every place and the person can never be separated from that emotional support animal and still function? That is not a true statement. So um, people can, both are true. Most Animals can be emotionally supportive and help people deal with their issues and people who are, are benefited by emotional Emotional support animals can still um, come to the point that they can develop and fu and function away from those animals at least for a period of time. So, uh, in fact, I would not want to go down the trail of suggesting that that they become somehow symbiotically united with an animal and they will never be able to function again without it. That would that would be counter therapeutic and, and unhealthy. Regarding the uh, family dynamics, though, you say this is your daughter-in-law and this is the first Christmas with her. Well, then I would strongly advise you to be self-sacrificial and Christ-like and not make an issue of this. Uh, this girl evidently uh, is taking the position she's got issues. I've got issues. I've got emotional challenges. I got, maybe it's trauma. -ish. I don't know what it is, but I'm so dysfunctional, I can't function without my animal. Well, that then is she's telling you she needs grace. She needs understanding. She needs uh, love. And if it's your first, if it's your first encounter together, then those who have grown in Christ and and have had time to mature in Christ need to take the position of being gracious and generous to those that are new to the family and maybe are still on a journey of healing and recovery. That doesn't mean you let the animal jump in uh, on your clothes or eat your food or knock stuff off of your tray, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That animal needs to be, uh, you know, uh, leashed or or maintained in the in the person's arms if it's a small animal. But I wouldn't make an issue out of the animal unless the animal is misbehaving and causing a lot of problems. Then you still don't focus on the animal. You focus on the, the misbehaviors and the problems that it's causing, knocking people over or whatever it's doing. What are your thoughts about the Pentecostal belief that when someone receives the Holy Spirit in their life, they speak in tongues? I go to a Pentecostal church and was taught this because of because of what happened to the disciples and others in the book of Acts uh, when they received the Holy Spirit. So it's a great question, and 
uh, it's a great opportunity to show how one uses Scripture. The problem with the Pentecostal approach to this is that they actually, by using this approach to advance the movement of the Holy Spirit, they actually restrict the movement of the Holy Spirit. Because what happens is, uh, if, you, if you actually read the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit comes, there are many manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Many. But in the Pentecostal application, this one text becomes the only manifestation of the Holy Spirit that's actually important or has any significant value, uh, rather than allowing the Spirit to determine the various fruits or gifts of the Spirit that the, that the Spirit wants to give to people. Further, I think that this doesn't really appreciate the landscape of the plan of salvation and why this was poured out in the context of the time. If you remember that after the flood, when, they, when the world was united with one language, they started to rebel against God in a un, united way, and God confused the languages for the purpose of slowing the rebellion against them and slowing the sin problem because they couldn't communicate with each other. So lies wouldn't penetrate every, every mind as quickly because some might not even be able to communicate those falsehoods or false beliefs because they can't talk to each other. So it slowed the sin problem and the rebellion. That's what happened at, at Babel. But what happened at Pentecost is we have the gospel message, but we have the gospel message being poured out in a landscape of a of a um, of a of a uh, metropolis where people were coming uh, through in areas of multiple different languages that they were speaking, and to advance the true message that would bring healing, the Holy Spirit was poured out and allowed them to be heard in everyone's language. So the, the apostles were speaking, and everyone was hearing it in their own language, and this advanced the gospel message. And that's the context of what's happening. And that still has occasionally happened down through the ages when people have been speaking. There have been times, and I've heard recent, more modern stories of somebody hearing uh, a sermon in their language, uh, even though the person was speaking in a different language. And that would be the gift of the Holy Spirit still being worked out today. So that's how I would handle that. Does mindfulness, the practice of purposely bringing one's attention uh, to pr uh, present moment experience, uh, a skill one develops through meditation derived from sati, uh, the significant element of Hindu and Buddhist traditions, and based on Zen, uh, vi vipassana, and Tibetan uh, uh, tradition techniques, have any place in Christianity? Uh, should it be practiced by Christians? So I would tell you that uh, if, you, if you don't have this already, uh, that I would recommend you get our uh, meditation, Biblical Methods versus Eastern Methods. This is available online in a PDF. You can read it, I think, as a flipbook online. If you have a U.S. postal address, we will ship this to you at no cost. This goes through the differences between Eastern and Biblical meditations, the different um, methodologies, and, and it, will, it will break down the steps. No matter what it's called, if it has these elements, it's Eastern meditation, not Biblical, so you can differentiate. Is this Eastern or, or Biblical? The different impact on the brain, which is different, the different impact on the on the character, which is different, and the different underlying philosophies. I will say in short that Eastern meditation is not biblical meditation. It actually interferes with the work of the Holy Spirit and prevents true conversion and transformation, whereas biblical manifestation leads us down a path that results in repentance, transformation, and renewal in Jesus Christ. So there's there are really different consequences. Does the close of probation happen for Adventists before the rest of the world, and is and is it uh, when the National Sunday Law is passed? So first off, the reason uh, some people teach that is because in Scripture, uh, when it talks about um, judgment, it uh, it talks about judgment starts with the house of God, and so I wouldn't say it starts with Adventists at all. 
I would say uh, that it starts with those who have put their trust in Jesus, whomever those people are. So the, those who have put their trust in Jesus, Jesus starts with them first, not because the judgment is a bad thing. It's because those who put their trust in Jesus, Jesus wants to heal them and cleanse them and free them first because they've run to him and he wants to finish the work in, in them. And uh, and then he moves on and it's more joyful to uh, to resolve the, the question of all those who are going to be healed than to have to, to deal with those who don't want Jesus in their life and and bring them to their conclusion. That's not as joyful. And so that's why it starts with the house of God, as far as, I, as, far as I'm concerned. Uh, and what about the National Sunday Law? So uh, for me, that's a whole different question. And it's a question that certainly may happen. It's also a question that may not happen. It's uh, if you understand the idea of, of conditional prophecies in Old Testament times, many prophecies were given about the Jewish nation. Certain things would happen; they would accomplish certain things. But those prophecies were conditional upon the people uh, fulfilling certain elements. And if they didn't fulfill certain elements, those prophecies didn't come true and will never come true. It's argument to be made that that the prophecies written uh, in early Adventism by Ellen White related to national Sunday laws will now never really happen because um, the Adventist Church failed its purpose in right after the 1888 message. The 1888 message, Righteous by Faith, was followed by the press and push in the U.S. Congress for National Sunday Laws. And Ellen White writes that the church rejected the 1888 message, acted the part of the Jewish nation when they rejected Christ. These are Ellen White's words and writings. She describes this. And that all of heaven was geared up to come, but because of the rejection of the message of the church, that postponement had to happen and there's been delay. And so one may make the argument that those Sunday laws would have happened in the 1890s, but they actually may never happen, and a new manifestation of coercive religious totalitarian um, uh, abuse may occur instead of Sunday law that will still fulfill the principles of what Sunday represents. And what are the Sabbath and Sunday elements? Sabbath represents it's a flag or a sign of God's government, just like the U.S. flag is a sign of the U.S. government. The U.S. flag is not the government. The U.S. flag is a sign of the government. God's, God's Sabbath is a sign, and it's a sign, and it came to be a set-apart day by creation. So it's a sign of creatorship. It's a sign of truth, God's methods, truth, love, presented, uh, presented love, and leaving people free. After the end of creation week, God rested his case. He stopped using power. He created a time for people to think for themselves. And so true Sabbath keepers are those who have those principles written on their hearts, and they remember the Sabbath to present truth in love and leave other people free. They won't coerce. They don't use imperialism. They use the evidence of of of, uh, of reality, the truth that God has brought and presented and revealed to us. Sunday became a special day by legislation, a rule made up by human authority, and it's enforced through coercion. And those who would adhere to the principles of Sunday, not really the day they may go to church, might go to church on Wednesday, for instance, but the principles of what Sunday represents, well, the mark of that power would be imperial power, uh, coercing people's consciences. Thus, over the COVID fiasco, those who believed in the vaccines and, and presented that truth in love but left people free and said, but you don't have to keep one if you don't, uh, okay, those would be Sabbath keepers. Those who believed in the vaccines and, and presented the truth but not in love and used coercion and fired people and coerced people um, to make sure that they got it and, and would hurt people to make sure they got it, those would be Sunday keepers in the metaphor of the what the Sunday and the Sabbath represent in God's principles and in, in, in kingdom. Those who go to church on Sunday but left people people free, they would be Sabbath keepers. That's how that works. 
if the if the legal needing appeasement judgment verbiage written in is in the Bible uh, comes from the bias of the Roman training uh, 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 traditions and pagan nations ways of thinking uh, in the Bible writers then how do we trust or read between the lines God's word and know whether it's accurate and how do we interpret it? So that's a, that's an actual excellent question because um, the best way would be for you and, and, uh, to learn Greek and Hebrew and read it in the original, right? Because what what happened is not a problem with the Bible. The problem is with the translations, and many people go to the Bible with a, an assumption God's law works like human law, and then we translate, they they translate in biases. And so one of the things we can do now, because there's been so many translations, is to get a variety of excuse me, a variety of different translations and compare them one to another. And then the the underlying or underpinning that helps you is understanding the design laws of God that never change, the law of love, the law of liberty, the law of worship, the law of exertion, all of God's design laws, and God never changes those. And when you understand those, they become litmus tests that you can then interpret certain passages of Scripture through, because love only exists in atmosphere of freedom, so God never coerces conscience. That doesn't mean he doesn't discipline, but that discipline is not the same thing as coercion. Parents who discipline their children ultimately their children free as their children grow up and mature to rebel and go away. What is the scripture evidence that once saved, always saved view is incorrect? So uh, you, you have to have a conversation with somebody who believes that because um, it depends on what they mean by it. Most of the time, they take it in a penal legal way, and they, they've done some legal thing. They've, they claim the blood of Jesus. Uh, uh, they've accepted pardon. Um, they've been baptized. They've done something, and therefore, they're declared righteous, even though they're not, and so they're saved, and they can never be lost. Some, some type of mechanical legal thing. Uh, and so I, if, if that's how they think about it, then, then I don't even go after the belief. I go after the underpinnings to the belief, which is the law and what salvation actually is, that the healing of the heart. Because there is an aspect where there is a certain truth um, that those who are settled or sealed into the truth of God, and we will be settled or sealed into the truth of God such that they cannot be moved, that they are now saved and they cannot be shaken from it, they're always saved. And so there's an aspect of being sealed or sealed uh, in God that, that nothing can shake us from us, but that's actually... Um, uh, and part of our experience in coming to trust God that we would rather die. So Daniel, for instance, was that he would rather go to the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would rather go in the fiery furnace. Nothing was shaking them from that. So they came to a saved friendship with God, and nothing could cause them to betray that friendship. That That's a different element. And if that's what they're talking about, then that's true. Is it okay to spank your child, and if so, at what age should you start doing it? You know, there is no yes or no on that question. Uh, it really is situational. Some children will be harmed by spanking and how the spanking is carried out and, and what method you use for spanking. Other children are absolutely benefited by spanking. So I, I would I, I can't give you a hard and fast rule on that. It really does depend on the personality, temperament of the child, how the spanking is carried out, what's done after the spanking. Is there time uh, for reflection? Is there then love and affirmation after the learning is taking place? There's all, all kinds of elements in that process where it can be uh, quite, quite uh, redemptive and healing or it can be quite harmful. I think I'm understanding your view of the investigative judgment on what uh, that uh, the work uh, Jesus is doing uh, is in the sinner and not in God. 
then what is the timeline significance? Why did it start in 1888? Why did it start soon after Jesus' work on the cross and fleeted? So uh, the Adventist view is that it actually started in 1844. The 1888 element uh, was the, the, the message, the special final message of righteousness by faith, which is that healing message that moved us away, moved the church away from the law orientation of things to the, to the healing transformation grace orientation of things away from a penal way of seeing God to a design law way of seeing God, moving back toward the creator worship. And, and that message was rejected. If you want to really read some good stuff on what the church should be teaching, read Steps to Christ, Christ Object Lessons, Desire of Ages, and Thoughts of the Mount of Blessings. All those are written after 1888, and they all teach the design law view of the plan of salvation. But what happens is, uh, theologically, what's embedded into our institutions is a penal substitutionary element in which God's law is like human law, and it's all penal legal in nature, and that is actually not true Adventism. That's, that is an infection to what we should be teaching. So the question is, why didn't it start as soon as uh, Jesus' uh, work at the cross was completed? It's not about time, it's about process. Uh, how long would it take an infinite God to go through, uh, you know, data sets and, and record books and cleanse or fix things in records? It, it, one uh, being who could speak the universe into existence could do that in an instant. So this has nothing to do with the dead, this has to do with the living. And so why wait till 1844 for the final work of Christ to be completed was because he because after the after the victory of Christ God prophesied through Paul that the man of sin would arise and he would set himself up against God and proclaim himself to be God work against everything that is godly and set himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God and, what, and that prophecy is about the rise of the man of sin, who presents himself with a false theology, false view of God, false plan of salvation, sets himself up in God's temple. God's temple that is talking about here is not the temple in heaven, it's the spirit temple. And he set himself up in God's temple with all of these imperial law constructs of a punishing God, purgatory, all these things we talk about, such that God is feared and hated, uh, burning, all this kind of stuff, this, this complete corruption, and people believe God is this way, and God cannot heal our hearts and minds if we don't trust him, and that setting himself up in God's temple was a version of God that people could not trust, and so God was waiting for enough truth to be recovered, which meant the Bible being translated and put in the hands of the people, enough truth about God to be recovered that we could reject the lies and have our spirit temples cleansed from the lies about God, and that process, that final cleansing, not of the dead, but of the living of the lies about God so that his final people on earth are prepared to meet him uh, when he comes, began around the 1844 time period. That's when enough truth had been recovered from that counterattack of the man of sin, so that we have a message that can refute that and set hearts and minds free. Did somebody have a question? I heard a breath. <laughs> no. Okay, I think there's one more question. Since the wicked experience the second death are unrepentant, why does the awareness of the suffering they have inflicted on others affect them? I don't, I don't understand that question. 
experiences that are unrepentant. Why? Oh, oh, okay. Because okay, it affects them not because they have a sensitive conscience, but because their denial doesn't work anymore. People who commit sin and don't repent, they actually justify themselves. They create a story inside their head that makes themselves look good. They make a story inside their head that suppresses, denies, and represses the actual guilt and shame that would naturally recall occur to anyone who who um. Uh, was aware of the actual truth of the situation. So they will turn it around and make it somebody else's fault, and they were only defending themselves. What happens at this point in time is all those lies they tell themselves that allow themselves to feel good about themselves are burned through, and they actually see the reality of who they are, and they don't like it. And that's what really causes it. All righty. Let's uh, close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, and we thank you for for the way you have created your universe. We thank you for the truth that you've revealed through all of your friends through history, and we ask that we can be your friends as well and take the truth about you to this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen.